If it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, that means it's time for Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and our WDIY app. And we start off with Perspectives with John Pierce. I am really pleased this evening to welcome back to our microphones Dr. James Higgins from Ryder University Department of History and Philosophy. Is it Department of History and Philosophy, Jim? Yes, it is. And you've been there since 2019? 2018, actually. 2018. Yes. Uh, As a historian, he actually knows dates, folks. I do. (laughs) I do. You have your bachelor's degree from St. Vincent College. Master from Duquesne University and Ph.D. from Lehigh University. Yes. So you are basically a New Jersey and Pennsylvania guy. Yes, I am. And born originally where? Born originally just outside of Chicago in Libertyville, but moved back to this area. My parents are from South Jersey and Philadelphia. So we moved back to this area when I was about a month old. You're from Libertyville. Yes, I'm from Libertyville. I'm from Evanston. Oh, my goodness gracious. I was in Evanston last August. Where are you? Yeah. For what reason? Uh, Going out to visit my stepson. Oh. And uh, stayed there and had a great time in Chicago area. Oh, it's a wonderful time. It's a great place. It really is. Yeah. So here we are, two Midwesterners. Yes. Talking this evening about health and medicine and the history of medicine, basically, because that is one of your major interests, right? Yes. One thing about history, when you're a historian, you can go so many different ways Mm -hmm. with it. Yes. Uh, I I began as a a historian of urban America and just dovetailed slowly but surely into the history of medicine, kind of kept it connected with with, uh, urban history. And just recently, I've begun to move into some more rural uh, history of medicine in my research. All right. And uh, we've talked about the uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and then the Midwest with Illinois, but we haven't talked about your experiences down in Texas. Sure. I taught down in Texas for about four years. And wherever I go, kind of my stock in trade is the influenza pandemic of 1918. And anyone that knows me professionally knows that that's kind of my, you know, if I have one big trick pony, that's the big trick pony, (laughs) the, the flu of 1918, 1922. Right. And because it was a rural area where I was teaching and living, you know, you really have to go with what the sources are in your area. And it really began with a question that I'd asked myself almost 20 years earlier uh, while I was at Lehigh. And that question revolved around scholars' common wisdom, which I began to understand more was a presumption. And the presumption was that African Americans suffered fewer deaths by rate and by number in the 1918 flu pandemic. Now, you were studying for a PhD at that time. I was studying for a PhD at the time. And uh, avian flu was spooking people, and SARS, the first of our big COVID um, viruses, came out. And so I was asked to do consulting for both uh, government and business. And it opened up my view of of what I should be looking at, what I should be examining, the questions I should be asking. And I became aware as I studied the flu from more contemporary sources that not only is it a scavenger of sick populations, meaning whenever you have an uptick in flu, you're going to have an uptick in deaths amongst people who are 
above the age of 65, people who are already chronically ill, uh, people who are chronically injured, so you know, amputees, people with diabetes. And so the rates of death go up. And our common perception, and it, it holds true, is if you've got a population that has an, a higher than average mortality rate when a pandemic or an epidemic is not occurring, that same population is almost certainly going to have an excess mortality rate when a pandemic comes as compared to the rest of the population. And if that's true, I began to consider that it was pretty difficult to swallow that the black community in America would have suffered a lower rate of death than whites. It just didn't seem tenable. Oh, interesting. What, you've mentioned uh, the elderly. How, how about infants? Infants, so on a normal, um, in a normal flu year, we talk about a, um, a U-graph. And so we talk about those under the age of five and those over the age of 65 having the lion's share of the deaths with the other people in between those two extremes of age tending to be what we often characterize as unlucky. You've got a chronic illness or you just took a bad case of the flu and you couldn't pull out from. The reality, though, is that from year to year during normal uh, influenza seasons, it's really a J-graph so that the long arm is weighted towards the elderly. Somewhere between 90 and 95% of all deaths during a normal flu season will be plus 65 years of age. And a normal flu season is every year, isn't it? Is every single year with thousands and thousands of deaths. The deaths happen quietly. You know, you're already, the person's in their 70s or 80s or 90s. You might ascribe it to something else, not the flu. It might, and, and very often what you'll find is that the death certificate, the cause of death will say pneumonia. But the sequence of events began with an influenza infection. And then bacterial pneumonia takes over from a body that's already damaged and an immune system that's already been overtaxed I by the I never thought about the, the possible relationship or what the difference is between influenza and pneumonia. pneumonia. Well, normally, if you've been treated for pneumonia, nine times out of 10, you'll be treated for bacterial pneumonia. And they'll give you a course of antibiotics and some steroids. Uh, influenza is caused by a virus. And so antibiotics won't do anything for you besides dealing with either a bacterial infection that rises in the wake of an influenza infection. And some doctors will put um, vulnerable people on a prophylactic course of antibiotics if they detect, uh, if they confirm a flu uh, infection just to stave off a possible uh, bacterial-caused mnemonic infection. Right. You mentioned already the uh, pandemic of 1918 to 22. That's four years. It's four years. And it's, you know, usually in a, in a documentary, uh, in popular histories, we talk about the pandemic of 1918 or the pandemic of 1919 and sometimes 1918, 1919. But the reality is many locations saw recurring waves that kind of peter out in the winter of 21, 22. Pittsburgh uh, in the winter of 1920 closes itself up again, and they suffer hundreds and hundreds of deaths from kind of their final wave of flu coming through. And if you think about the way COVID has acted, it wasn't a six-month pandemic. It wasn't a year-long pandemic. We've had excess mortality because of COVID now since March of, of 2020 in the United States. Right. And are we still in the COVID? We have declared an end to the emergency. You know, you have to bear in mind that it can be reinstated with something as simple as uh, a new mutation in the virus. And so a new mutation where most people will be only partially immune to it. Um, usually when a COVID, and we see this with influenza, usually when there's a mutation, 
uh, if you've already had this strain, you'll have some immunity. You'll have a, a stronger immune response to it. But it, it very often, as we saw with Delta, um, Omicron, it, it may not be enough to take a person, especially if they're older or they are immunocompromised or they have chronic illness. That prior exposure may very well not be enough to carry them through the infection. And, you know, the infection can still lead to death, even though you've got some immunity to well, it. Well, here we are in the middle of 2023. Yes. And I see once in a while people with masks on still. Yep. Although uh, in 2020, 2021, it was much more common. Yes. Now much more people common. have sort of thought, I guess they think, well, I'm not going to get it. That's the way I'm thinking yep. and hoping and crossing my fingers. Yep. But uh, it is kind of amazing to think that this one, 1918 to 22, you put four years on it. Yeah, you put four years on it. How many people died across the globe and the U.S. during that time? So when I began my research in January of 2000, when I was still a master's student out in Pittsburgh, in the United States, we gave a figure of about 650,000. And by the time I was a couple of years in at Lehigh, we were up to three quarters of a million. I'm comfortable saying about a million between 1918, 1920, 21. Uh, 1920, for instance, is a terrible year for people uh, dying from heart attacks. And we suspect that uh, people who already had chronic heart conditions were weakened by influenza. The mayor of Allentown at the time, Reichenbach, who's responsible for putting up the flower pots on Hamilton Street, oh. he goes to Atlantic City in early 1919. He never comes home. He's sick with the flu. Uh, he spends much of the pandemic in Allentown, actually in Atlantic City. And he dies there in March of 1920 from a heart condition that, that became pronounced in 1918 during a bout of influenza. And we will never know the extent to which influenza played a role in many no, of these deaths. No, it's very difficult. It is very difficult to describe what might have been as a historian. So we can tell you what happened. But if you look at Lehigh County, the youngest district attorney we ever had, he contracts influenza in October of 1918. He's 35 years old, and he's dead a week later. And before this, he had served in the Pennsylvania legislature. His, his star was on the way up. And we can make oh. conjecture about what might have been. Uh, but that by the time he would have retired around the age of, of 55 or 60. That's in not 19, a historian's job. You can't, you can't do it. It's just it's counterfactual. It's supposition yeah. at best. Uh, globally, we had uh, suggested about 23, 24 years ago that 21 or 22 million people died globally. Okay. New research indicates that 21 million died in India alone. And that's how we get a number that it used to be 50 to 100 million. We've pared that down. And now we generally suggest that you can't go below about 35 million. It may very well have been above 50 million globally, about 1% or, 1 or so of the, the population. And so you mentioned before African-Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have uh, any data about them? And also uh, Hispanics and uh, Asian Americans yeah. and uh, Native Americans, the whole sweep there? So if we start with Native Americans, particular Native American reservations and villages face complete catastrophe. We have villages, especially in Alaska, that suffer 100 percent death rates. They're, oh. they're extinguished. And it's often the mailman that brings it in through boat. Oh. And respiratory viruses, and we don't want to get too far into relatively small populations of Asian originated settlers coming across the Bering Land Bridge 
to North America in kind of two distinct patterns of settlement. But they're coming across in uh, the Neolithic and before the Neolithic. So these crowd diseases that we developed, like smallpox, don't exist for these populations. And so even the common cold uh, was able to kill people in the 15 and 1600s who come in contact with Europeans, Africans, and small numbers of Asians. And so when the flu comes to some of these, these places, it's absolutely devastating. In fact, we're able to recover uh, tissue samples from a place called Brevig Mission, Alaska, and the villagers were buried uh, within the permafrost. And oh, this is what century you're talking uh, about? So they're buried in 1918, and their tissue samples were removed in 1997. University of Minnesota researchers were able to reconstitute most of the 1918 flu, and essentially Brevik Mission was wiped out. And you have this happening in that kind of Arctic region because if, if you're not killed by the flu, then the next thing that gets you is starvation, right? Because it happens on the cusp of winter or it happens in the middle of winter. If we come further down the Navajo, uh, for instance, in the Four Corners region, they take a terrible hit from flu and it is rolled into oral memory. In the early 1990s, a, uh, a new virus emerges in the Four Corners region. It's a hantavirus. And they had a tribal memory an ethnic memory that told them that after you had a wet winter, you would have death in, in these villages. What this oral memory is keying in on is probably the blooming of, of pine trees and pine nets falling, and so the mouse population explodes. And this virus is carried in the feces and urine of the mice. They defecate and urinate in your home. You sweep it for your spring cleaning, and that brings it in the air. You inhale it and you, you come down with a rapidly advancing, what we call fulminant uh, pneumonia. It's just hour by hour you're getting worse. And they said, you know, we had this happen in 1918 too. I'm convinced it wasn't a hantavirus in 1918. I'm convinced that that's the flu coming into this region and, and killing the people because yeah. it's the right time frame uh, after winter of 1918, 1919. Right. Yeah. My guest this evening on Perspectives is Dr. James Higgins who is professor of history at Ryder University and also a board member of the Lehigh Valley Historical Society. Want to talk a little bit about that, Jim, because okay. you're very active there. Yes. And uh, it's a pleasure to have him back. Our uh, engineer, Sarit Lashinsky, doing his a great job over there. Stay with us, dear listeners, and we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all the programming you hear possible. Becoming a WDIY member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure WDIY will be here for the next person in our community to discover. Make your membership gift today at 610-694-8100 extension 4 or WDIY.org. We couldn't be here without you. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar, every Thursday from 7 to 9, here on WDIY. And we're back, talking about the history of medicine, and particularly influenza. The uh, influenza pandemic of 1918 to 22. We have talked about COVID, with which we are all too familiar. My guest is Dr. James Higgins. Jim, 
we left off there talking about Hispanics. No, we didn't. But we le uh, left off talking about Native Americans. Yes. <laughs> and we want to go a little bit into Hispanics and, and then Asian Americans and then African Americans. Yes. So with, with Hispanic Americans, the populations I look at, you know, we think of many of the larger cities of the Midwest, upper Midwest, and the East Coast as having relatively large Hispanic populations. That's more of a phenomenon that occurred after the pandemic. And so for me, looking at Hispanic populations, it's, it's the Mexican-American population. Mexico suffered probably the, the worst national death rates that, that we have evidence for in the Western Hemisphere, 1918-1922. And this pandemic occurs in the midst of the Mexican Revolution. And so you have a lot of refugees that are hitting the roads and paths and coming north into the United States. Without generalizing too much, we also have a population of Mexican-Americans who have been in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California for generations by 1918. Many of them occupy, by no means all, but many of them occupy lower reaches of the socioeconomic ladder. And if, if we're going with the model where influenza is scavenging people who don't have access to health care, whose, whose health generally isn't very good, then you would tend to see an excess death rate there. And we do see it, whether we're looking at Texas or Arizona, um, both through government records, newspapers, diary accounts, interviews with people who were alive in 1918. And many of these uh, Mexican sections of places like San Antonio, which generally would have looked like an African-American population in that they're mostly denied services. You're still using street sewers. I mean, you know, on the street sewers and cesspools to capture your waste. Very little access to hospitals and doctors. And in rural areas, uh, the situation is just worse. By no means in, in the area of, uh, of Texas uh, that I've studied were Mexican-Americans on the same level in terms of poverty as African-Americans. African-Americans tended to occupy one or, or two rungs below uh, Mexican-Americans in places like Texas. So depending on your community, African-Americans would be educated by themselves in segregated schools. But your community may have allowed Mexican-Americans to go to school with white children. Um, there wasn't a hard and fast state law oh. on that. So you see it, you, you can see the difference even within one county. So a very small town, for instance, not to cast aspersions on small towns, but they, in my experience, my research experience, would have been more likely to segregate uh, Mexican-Americans by schooling, by housing, um, even by hospitals. But if you're African-American anywhere, you're going to be segregated. The problem with coming up with numbers is complicated. One, most of your southern states aren't in the national registration area for the census. So you have to, you have to break the 90 percentile of accuracy to be included in that national registration area. And so Pennsylvania, for instance, uh, moves into that registration area in 1905, 1906. We really got our vital statistics down pat. But you have huge areas, and you know you think of some of these mostly rural, large southern and lower midwestern, southwestern states. And you know, we have 67 counties in, in Pennsylvania. There are hundreds of counties in, in a state like Texas. Many of them have almost no population. It's, it's desert or it's ranch land or it's prairie, especially back in 1918. And so you don't have a good handle on the raw numbers anyway. 
right? And the government's not really keeping track. So I mostly do my work through church records in the newspapers. The church records will, um, and we're talking Roman, mostly Roman Catholic here when you're talking about Mexican-Americans. The church records will keep an accurate account, roughly accurate account. But and what what do you find in those records? Is it deaths? Yeah, it's deaths. And you know, when you're looking at any church records or even private organizations, you can do it here in the valley. Look at a few years before 1918, and then look at 1918, 1919, and watch the deaths zoom up. They triple or they quadruple usually, even in a in a middle class organization like the Lions Club or something. And in this mostly rural area of Texas, tens of thousands of African Americans and Mexican Americans acted as agricultural laborers for the rice fields, uh, for the corn fields that were down there, the sugar cane. And they're almost without any resort whatsoever to early 20th century medicine. There are newspaper accounts of waves of refugees walking out of the darkness into the larger towns of the region, kind of northwest of Corpus Christi. And they're agricultural workers and their families coming in desperately ill. And newspapers are reporting that people are dying on the edges of fields. And if there are enough people to bury them, they're just being put in the ground in the fields without any burial certificate whatsoever. So when you, you go a bit north and you're looking, well, is this happening in Arkansas? Is it happening in Louisiana? Is it happening in Tennessee? Which by especially a southern measure was a very highly industrialized state uh, by the late 19th, early 20th century. And it is. What's happening mostly in these rural areas where we just don't have, you know, a real accounting by the government for what happened. When I surveyed newspapers in this crossroads region of, of Texas, they never discussed a white person dying without a name. They'd always give you a name. You'd have advertisements in the newspapers. You'd have notices, three coffins sent for two Negroes and their mother in some part of Quero County or something in Texas. You don't even have the names recorded. They're not being buried, many of them, in cemeteries. They're being buried, or they're being buried in cemeteries that don't exist anymore because they were just unincorporated areas in a rural area, frankly, where the African-Americans or Mexican-Americans, depending on um, who found it and lived in the community, can virtually guarantee that the whites are gonna leave them alone. And for that space outside of white America, they can make a life for themselves. They've got a church, and they've got a school, and they've got a cemetery. And those three things are usually in these communities. But these communities have been abandoned for 50, 60 years. And so, you know, they may be, it may be a, a marking on an older map, and then you have to go out and find them. And sometimes they're on private property, sometimes they're in state parkland, a ranch, you have to ask for permission to go on it. And you walk in, it tends just to be um, some broken down buildings, some mounds that indicate where mil maybe buildings had been, and then a cemetery that's just kind of overgrown over there. And you have to check them against newspapers. And you've done all this? Yeah. In, yeah. Te in Texas? Yeah, and I've, I've done it. Um, what I want to do is try to compare it to um, populations of African Americans in urban cities, urban areas in the north. So I can, I can compare the two and see whether or not in these urban areas, because in the back of my mind, I always have to, you know, I always have to keep um, in the back of my mind the possibility that the people who came before me, historians who came before me were right. And the common wisdom is right. And African-Americans did suffer fewer deaths. The common wisdom is that they're exposed to more disease. And so their, their bodies are stronger. But this is a very unscientific way of approaching 
um, the way the immune system works and the way public health works, the way the body works. And so I don't, I don't put much emphasis on the notion that urban Northern African Americans would have a, a lower death rate than, than whites, but you do have to keep that in mind. You really do. And I'm seeing the same sorts of things happen in, like I said, rural Tennessee. And you can see the same thing in, in Pennsylvania. Coal mining towns, lumber towns in, in the central and um, north central parts of the state were just, they were just devastated by the flu. And right. well, as I may have said last year, the three worst hit major cities in the country are all in Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. Scranton, and Philadelphia in that order. Oh. Yeah. With Philadelphia studied around the planet by epidemiologists for how that city just came apart, it seems. Right. Part of it, just many, many, many people together. And then the, the mining would be respiratory problems. Yep. Makes sense. Jim, uh, the last time that I ran into you, you were on a panel yes. at the Lehigh County Historical Museum, and it was for Juneteenth. Yes. And you uh, mentioned the phrase soft racism. Right. Did you make up that term? No, no. no. It's a term that, that scholars and commentators will use. It is relatively synonymous with what the, the kind of more popular phrase, institutional racism. Institutional racism, I think, pricks people's ears sometimes the wrong way because a lot of people do not wish to see our, our nation as kind of constructed with, with racism built into the system. And so I, I think using the phrase soft racism, I'm very mindful because I've got one leg in public history of not turning an audience off. I want you to listen and then maybe in quiet moment by yourself, let this information, let this data run through your head, and maybe you'll change your conclusions and views. And so I think oftentimes people who have very good intentions in terms of fighting structural racism will turn off the very audience that you need to help fight structural racism. And so soft racism is a term that I'll frequently use. But in my work, it simply means uh, a system of, of public health and, and public and private medicine that was never geared towards delivering to the poor, and the poor overwhelmingly are, are still people of color in our country. Uh, the, the, the result then is that people who are especially people of color and poor, have higher rates of sickness and death. And whether that's now and the numbers that are coming out of rural counties and places like Mississippi, Alabama, with African-American uh, death rates compared to white death rates during COVID, they're just on the face of it. There's a disproportionality there. I think that, and I tell my students this, you know, it is very easy to point your finger at a historic photograph of some man wearing a you know, KKK uniform. And thousands, truly thousands of people were lynched um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. But if you take a step back and you say, well, you know, pick a town, any town, let's just confine it to the American South. How many African-Americans or whites who were fighting for African-American civil rights, how many were lynched in that town? Maybe you have one. Now, line up the mortality rates by age for whites, and then line up the mortality rates for African Americans by whites in that town. And get, you know, do your math and figure out how many deaths per year from the white population, and then you can divide them into disease categories, do the same thing with African Americans, and generally uniformly, you'll see higher rates of death amongst African Americans, even in a relatively small town. 
right? And so you had this, maybe this one person who was lynched, and it's, it's a tragedy. But what you're not cognizant of is that the decision by your town to stop sewage here before it goes into the black section of town, right? By law, you're segregated here. We're not going to have a hospital for you, right? Emergency hospitals were set up all over the South in 1918, 1919. That didn't let African-Americans in, okay? Uh-huh. They died in their homes. Right. And that's kind of lost. But that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's where, where the real death and destruction is coming from. You, you know, you can only do so much as, as a racist member of an organization like the KKK or a fellow traveler. But if you, if, if you decide that the white section of town is getting chlorinated water and the black section isn't, well, then one part of your town just went into a 21st century standard of water quality. And the other part of the town is still operating at a 19th century standard of water quality. And if the white section of town is the only section that's going to have doctors with diphtheria, antitoxin, the black section isn't, well, guess what you're going to find in the black section? Higher rates of diphtheria death. You can go right down every category of disease like that. Right. Jim, our time is almost up. Uh, Let's just talk to you a little bit about your membership on the board of directors of the Lehigh Valley... Lehigh County Historical Museum, right? Yes. Uh, What's popping over there these days? So we are, we're actually, you know, four months away, uh, mid-October, end of October is what we really consider our holiday season. And this is when we get the most visitors who are coming in. Look, the weather turns cold. You know, in the warm summer months, most people don't want to be inside of a museum or coming to a, a lecture on a Saturday. Thank you for coming to that. (laughs) <laughs> and and the museum is located at? Uh, it's located in Allentown on Walnut Street. Walnut and 4th. Wal- Walnut and 4th. Right. And uh, we're open Tuesday through Saturday uh, from 10 to 4 p.m. Excellent. All right. Well, Jim, you're doing good work there, and you are also a professor at Ryder University. Yes. That continues. Yes. Congratulations on your career and for enlightening us today on these aspects of the history of medicine. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. You bet. And thanks to Sarit Lashinsky for bringing us through this episode of Perspectives. I'm John Pierce, your host. Until we meet again, remember to be gentle with your neighbor. If you enjoyed this program, please go to the WDIY website or app to share or become a WDIY member.